0: It's a little bit muggy today because we had rain yesterday. I think it's uh, probably the second time all year. And uh, we were so excited. We brought Gabby down, our daughter, just to see it and just to explain to her that's called rain. (laughs) And I think a little tears came down our eyes, you know, like, it's rain. But uh, it's great to be together. It is uh, summertime and we have quite a few people visiting uh, from different churches, uh, literally around the world. I think we have a, a sister... Uh, let me get her to stand, Fifi from Indonesia, visiting us today. So the Kandals are inviting all their friends from Indonesia. You get that? I mean, there's a steady stream of Indonesian brothers and sisters coming like every other week. So it's great uh, to, to have you. And then I think we have some folks from New York City, too, right? New York? All right, New York! And then uh, we have a very special um, sister from uh, an old friend of the L.A. church, and uh, she uh, currently lives in Dallas, and that's uh, Irina Reed. Let me get uh, Irina to stand on up. Is she back there? There she goes. Uh, They're great disciples from the old uh, metro uh, region from before, and I know that Leon uh, moved out with Irina, and Leon had passed away. But uh, it's great to have you with us, and uh, we're looking forward to having some great fellowship together. But who else is here? Do we have anyone else here? (laughs) Uh, All right, from Georgia. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) And I think we have some locals, too. Okay. The Lighthouse. Okay. Great. And you're going to be coming into Pepperdine. Is that right? Oh, okay, back there. All right, great. So we're really excited. I think God is uh, doing some great things in our church and allowing really just the kingdom, just to see uh, brothers and sisters not only locally in L.A., but throughout the world coming here to L.A. visit or visiting, liking it, and staying as well. So welcome. You know, uh, we have been talking about... Um, Jesus and his words. Certainly, you know, with the media today and with mass communication, there's just an influx of information, and, uh, whether it's through the media and, and airwaves or in print, of what Jesus said and did. And we thought it would be a great idea this summer, in conjunction with our first principles lessons on Wednesday night, that uh, we do a series on what did Jesus really say and what did he say Uh, In his own words, last week we did a study on Jesus on himself. Like, what did he say about himself? And today we want to talk about really the topic that he talked a lot about when he was with us in his public ministry, and that's the kingdom of God. And it's awesome that we had a chance to get people to stand on up and uh, recognize people from all around the world, because that's what Jesus' kingdom is all about, That is not a static place one place or one group of people or one nationality or one demographic, but it's people from all around the world and of all types, shapes, and sizes. Amen? And unified together uh, under uh, his love for us and uh, his word. So today we're going to study out Jesus, a red-letter revolution, but uh, we're going to study out Jesus in his own word, what he said about the kingdom of God. Let's say prayer. Father, we're so grateful to you that we can all gather here together to listen to your word. Father, you are in your love and in your infinite wisdom. You know that we need you. We need to be constantly reminded of who you are and what the kingdom is all about. Help us to appreciate that. Help us to appreciate the fact that we get to be in your kingdom, in your church, in your dominion, and that we can call others as well. Father, help me as I preach your word, share your word, and teach your word. Father, I pray that uh, we can do it in a way that will honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is the kingdom of God? And uh, honestly, it's very difficult to explain. Because there are basically two, two components of the kingdom. One is obviously the physical side of the kingdom. And even that's really hard to explain. Because not necessarily what we see today that the church is the kingdom of God. And we're going to go into a little bit of that later on. But there is a physical side to it. But there's also a spiritual side, which we will probably talk more about today than than the physical, uh, although we'll cover that at the beginning. Jesus, when he was on earth, struggled with words. you ever struggle with words? I struggle with words all the time. Uh, You know, Lena and I, when we were overseas, um, we learned quite a few languages. And by the time it was all over, I was really jumbled up. Like I would speak Thai to a Vietnamese person. I would speak Filipino to an American, and it was just really, really messed up. And some sentences actually combine like five or four different languages together. And I kid you not. So when people ask me, what language do you speak? And I said, one, English. That's it, just to keep things simple. But, you know, my wife is brilliant. So, you know, she gets to pick it up. And even though I was born in Vietnam, when we went to Vietnam, they thought she was Vietnamese, and they thought I was the rich foreign uh, Japanese businessman, and I always get great seats in restaurants, like awesome seats, right? But, uh, they, they, but, but my wife is brilliant. Yeah, I appreciate our friendship with the, uh, the Shumps, and, um, you know, our wives are pretty smart, don't you think, Mark? You know, Catherine's from Harvard, Lena's from Berkeley, so they sit down, they have these high-level talks, and I was thinking about Mark and myself, and we, we talk about stuff, it's not as high level. Um, the other day, we spent up to like midnight. And it wasn't something earth shattering. We were going through the rosters of all the old baseball teams that we liked. Like the 79 Pirates was one, 89 Giants, 88 Dodgers. And uh, we're like, as, I was, as we were going back, we go, man, Mark, maybe you and I are focused way too much on this. And we we reserved. Too much on this. Maybe we should think about other stuff. But we were struggling, you know, with words and names and to figure out, you know, we do that. We struggle. And Jesus did the same thing. He looked around all of us as he was explaining to his disciples. He says, what shall I say the kingdom of God is like? What parable should I use to describe it? He says, well, there's a couple reasons why he struggled. Because he is so high level that he has to find the words that we can understand. You know, we, we, Gabby's a gabber. I mean, she lives up to her name. We're struggling to find words, like to, to describe to her what things are like, how rain came to yesterday. It was about the rain, right? So at three years old, we were finding the vocab. Jesus did the same thing to his disciples. How can I explain this to you, what the kingdom of God is like? Not only in the terms of, like, just words and verbiage, but really the concept of the kingdom of God as well. So he says, What 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 you know this is trying to grab words from the air. You know, how can I how can I tell you, Peter, you know, Mr. Fisherman? How can I tell you, you know, Matthew, Mr. Tax Collector, what the kingdom of God is like? And today i are gonna take a little stab at it as well because it's not easy. It's not easy. And we're gonna have three points. Okay? Now, we do know that the kingdom, there's a physical facet to the kingdom, and this is really fascinating. About 600 BCE, before the Common Era, there was a man by the name of Daniel, and he lived in a great empire called the Babylonian Empire. And that's the great thing about the Bible, too. It's also a historical book. It's not like something, you know, we read last week about how Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. There's an absolute to it, okay? We live in a postmodern world, some say post-postmodern world where things are relative, and it's really refreshing to see Jesus as I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, end of discussion. But the Bible's also a, an historical book as well. And the beauty of that is why? Why is it good for us that it's a historical book? You can actually go back and look at it and, and cross-reference with historians. Like, is it what it is? Did what the Bible say? Is it true? And it wasn't like just this little podunk, little empire somewhere. This is the great Babylonian empire we're talking about. We're talking about the equivalent of a Soviet Union, Russia, China, or the United States of America. One of the great powers. So Daniel was in exile at that time. And he was reading this vision for the king. And this is what he saw in the future about this physical kingdom. He says, after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. So Daniel describes to Nebuchadnezzar four kingdoms. The one that he's in now, it's the Babylonian kingdom. Subsequently, there's going to be the, Persian, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, which took over uh, only a few decades after. And then after that, Alexander the Great took over. And then after that, the Bible says that uh, there's this kingdom that is really it's strong as iron, but it's, it's in pieces. And that's exactly what happened. This kingdom was different than the other ones because it wasn't just because of one person whether it's you know, Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great, um, but it was broken up after Alexander died, and it was given to his generals, and it became the Roman Empire. So that's what Daniel said 600 years before Jesus ever even arrived. He says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people, It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. He says, listen, it's going to happen. And in those days, this kingdom will rise. And it will be like no other kingdom that's ever seen or will be seen. And it's going to go all around the earth, and it will crush all the other kingdoms. Today, we have the benefit of of looking back in history, amen? We know that the Babylonian empires got destroyed, and basically what's left is Iraq. You know, remember when Saddam Hussein, when he was still around? He was toting his sword and his guns, remember? Basically, he saw himself as the next Nebuchadnezzar. And we know how that all turned out, right? So we know that the Greek empire destroyed itself as well. Right now, they don't have any money, as a matter of fact. Maybe you've been reading your news. So we, we see these things in hindsight. And what we see it today, did you get a kick out of that, Kenny? I'm glad. So we see that, and what should it do to us? It should increase our faith. So we don't read something that's arcane and out of use. We see that and we go, oh my gosh, I'm living today where I can look back in history, what had happened, and I can look even today and see what's going on. And even the great Roman Empire. What's, what's left of them is some great shoes and, you know, and, and that's about it, okay? But this kingdom endures forever. What does it look like? What does it look like? And what does it, what does it compose of? The Babylonian Empire, pretty big, pretty extensive. Persian Empire, pretty extensive in the, in the Middle East. And in, in, in uh, Europe, the beginning of Europe there, but not quite. The Greek Empire, pretty extensive. Alexander was amazing. He died relatively young. No heir. That's why his generals broke up the different parts of the, uh, the uh, uh, Greek Empire and became the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. You see the expansive of it going all the way up to Europe. It never got to Germany. Remember that movie, Gladiator. That beginning scene was actually 150 years later on, but it was trying to. It was, it was still an attempt to conquer those Germans, and they never did. They never did. Go Germans! You know, I appreciate Con- uh, uh, Connie. Uh, you know, heeding the call of song leadership and came up. And I appreciate Connie's uh, zeal. Don't you think? I mean, she's the most you know like expressive German I've ever met. Um, But they never got Germany, but it was pretty expansive. Amazingly expansive. And yet, as great as that empire was, Daniel says, that's nothing. That is nothing. It's going to crumble, and this other kingdom actually is going to supersede it. This is the Roman Empire. I think this is during the apostolic times. And then we're going to see this about, um, you know, uh, during its its height for, for half a millennium. And you see that you know they were under attacks. Even their kingdom was under attack quite a bit. You got some really bad uh, characters in it. You got the Huns from the north. Uh, you got the Visigoths from the, the, the west. So they were under attack constantly. Okay, and it itself collapsed. And the Eastern Roman Empire under uh, Constantinople also. Uh, and we we can look back in history on that. So what is this kingdom that that the Bible is talking about, and what does it look like? I have three points today. In my attempt to change and to become a better presenter, uh, I've learned a few things. We, I got in a study with uh, a friend of mine this past week, and we spent about four hours together. And at the end, he says, uh, It would have helped if you told me at the beginning what we were doing. So, <laughs> I'm like, I thought I did. But anyway, I found out that I need to be a little bit more, you know, just, just a little bit more clear on the front end. So we have three points today. Okay? So this was the, um, by the time that Jesus came around, you see the world was in turmoil, right? This is really uh, what Jesus was born into. A world dominated by the Roman Empire. And yet there was this friction and tension between the Jews and the Romans because they know what the Bible said about this great kingdom that was supposed to come. And they were trying to usher it in themselves, whether militarily or politically. Politically, they were pretty dominated. They were pretty crushed. Okay? But yet there were people like this who became a Christian. Judas the Zealot. Who in, they took matters into their own hands. And that's why the Romans were so freaked out during that time, where there was a big day of Pentecost, or whatever festivals in Jerusalem was a powder keg. That's why it was politically so, you know, people were watching Jesus to see what he was going to do because it was so tense during that time. This is one a picture of the zealot, one of the zealot, a faction within the Jewish community that believed that they were kind of like, you know, like, look, we're going to take into our own hands. We're going to wipe out the, um, the Romans. They didn't have the military power, so what their strategy was a guerrilla warfare. And they had these knives that, uh, that they put underneath their cloak. And they would go to a Roman general or whomever they could get their hands on. And it would assassinate them in the street. That was the atmosphere that Jesus came into. And he spoke about the kingdom. Okay? So he spoke about the kingdom. And this is after his um, temptation. He was forced into uh, the desert to be tempted. When he came back, there was a tradition at the time of visiting rabbis to read scriptures and scrolls, pull out the scrolls. And in Luke 4, he brought out the scroll, and this is what he said. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as it was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And Isaiah also talked about the kingdom. That all people will stream to this. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Everything was pretty good to this point. And even afterwards, it was pretty good until Jesus pressed the point. What was the thing that was so controversial? What was the thing that that got the the Pharisees and all these guys all stirred up? Then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fixed on this man. He began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled at your hearing. I am the fulfillment of, Of the kingdom of God. Pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? Not somebody that had political power. You know, not Bill Gates that had a lot of money. But this dude from Nazareth said, Today, this is fulfilled in your presence. Lucky you. They didn't feel that way. Because they had another expectation of what the kingdom was going to be like. Because as an oppressed people, as a people that have known slavery, they were looking for someone to do something in their mind. And Jesus says, I'm not like that. It was a different kind of kingdom. And it was one that would make people struggle. It would be one that made people rejoice. It was one that made people disappointed. And one of Jesus' own disciples, after three years of being with him, killed himself because he was, he was so disappointed at who Jesus turned out to be. Isn't that amazing? I got three points today. And before we do that, uh, I keep saying that, um, we're going to look at a video. Okay? And uh, this video is by N.T. Wright. He's the preeminent um... Am I something funny? Um... Uh, <laughs> He's one of the preeminent New Testament scholar. And if you set this on your schedule, next year he's going to be a Pepperdine. Pretty, pretty impressive guy. And this is what he said about what the kingdom of God is like. Okay, Nathan, all yours.
1: I remember a long time ago now in the 1970s when we had one of those NIAC conferences and John Stott gave the summary speech and he said people are always saying what is the irreducible minimum gospel and I remember him saying I don't want an irreducible minimum gospel I want the whole gospel and it was kind of a wonderful rhetorical flourish. Now of course we all know that there are times Uh, somebody sitting on a railway train next to you suddenly says is that book reading you're reading about God can you tell me about God or Jesus or something and you've got five minutes before the next stop what do you say we've all been in situations like that and basically you say a quick prayer and you go for it but at the center of it must be Jesus himself not a theory not uh, um, an idea but actually something about this person because and I was just talking to a friend yesterday who who said um, you know here is this wonderful house which is is the Christian faith, uh, what's the front door? Where do people come and go? And the answer is, it is Jesus himself. That Take Jesus away and you're left with a bunch of very odd theories which may or may not make sense to people but the, the figure of Jesus himself always has been central and utterly compelling um, and of course it's to do with who he was, it's to do with the meaning of his death, it's to do with his resurrection particularly, but it's to do with the fact that in and through Jesus, the living God, um, opened the great door of his new world which he's been uh, intending to make and invited us all to come through it with him and somehow to say that And you can contextualize that every which way you like for the person who maybe uh, only has two minutes to live or only two minutes beside you on the train. Something about Jesus, something about what God did through him, particularly through his death and resurrection. Those are the things, however you're going to stitch it together, which want to be in that irreducible minimum.
0: Mm -hmm. Isn't that cool? He says, Jesus is the door. He's got this beautiful house, which is called the kingdom. And Jesus is the door where you go in. And you go out. So that's what the kingdom is. Is Jesus came by and ushered in this kingdom. And he himself was that kingdom. Jesus in his own words, the kingdom of God. Did I tell you I got three points? <laughs> I got three points. Three points. Okay. And um, these three points are, are designed to help us to understand a little bit better of what the kingdom is like and what we need to do to get in it, okay? To help us to understand a little bit better what it is, what it's like, because it's a whole lifetime of really exploring and searching. And what do we need to do to get in it? What does it take, and what do we need to do to get in it? Three points. It will come, not as expected. Uh, That didn't transfer well. Number two, and we're going to take communion, and Drew's going to come up and pray, pray for us. He will pay for that kingdom with his own life. That's the cost. And number three, he admonished us and encouraged us to get in at all cost. Okay? Point number one, he will come not as expected. You see, we have three points, and I highlighted the first point uh, in underline. It says, will come not as expected. Hopefully, I did a good job in setting up the atmosphere of the day, right? These Jews are looking for some great military leader like an Alexander the Great to come and give them something phenomenal, like just something that was this third temple kind of stuff like just amazing stuff but instead he was when he was pressed this is what he said he says once being asked by the pharisees when the kingdom of god would come jesus replied the pharisees were like dude we're like tired of being second fiddle to the romans we're just like feeding off their crumbs we're like compromising ourselves to these Romans, because we want to keep our power. And actually, the Romans were, a little, uh, the, the Pharisees were a little bit more better, better than the Sanhedrin and, and those other guys, uh, because they actually tried to do a semblance of, of obeying God's word. But even they were looking forward can you give us something great? Can you give us something that we can handle? Can you give us something that we can be respectable about, you know, as a people? Can you give us something that in comparison to other people, you know, we look good. We're just not these these losers under the Romans. And Jesus said, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And the NIV says, the kingdom of God is within you. It's not about a building. It's not about just the flash. It's not about all those things. It's about each and every one of us in this room. It's among you. It's a mist in you. It's within you. It's within me. There is great freedom in this scripture. You know that? You know why? Because you, can, you don't have to look at outside to make you happy. You don't have to look at things outside. and you, We Actually, Jesus says, We need to learn how to be equilibrium, you know, just inside and outside. Not just when outside is bad. We're like all messed up. Like we are fine on the inside. That's what the kingdom is. There's a security. There's a peace. There's an understanding of something greater that no one else has. And I love that scripture when he came and he talked about, for the pagans run after these things. You know what pagan means? People that don't have God. People that, if there is no other sense of eternity, if this is it, of course we're gonna dog-eat-dog and, you know, do whatever you can, because if there is no eternal reasons to live, and there's no judgment, there's nothing like that, this is it. Yes! Let's go after it. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He says the kingdom of God is within us. It's in our midst. It's who we are. It's what we make it out to be, and how we Um, that's not a good way of saying that actually. It's not, it's not what we make it out to be because the kingdom itself, it is what it is. And it's our job to become more like the kingdom, to reflect what the kingdom of God is like. Did you know that the word kingdom never was equated with church? And I thought about that for a long time ago, why did God, because he's a genius Because when you look at the churches today, you don't want the kingdom to be compared to what we see today. Right? The kingdom is above the church. The church can become part of the kingdom. But it doesn't mean that the kingdom necessarily is the church at all. At all. And we're going to look at that a little bit more. So the Pharisees sees the kingdom as this. And Joan Osborne sees the kingdom as a different thing. This song was written about, what, 15 years ago? And if you look at the lyrics, it's a little bit of a mockery. You know, we live in a postmodern world, and we don't trust anything. And uh, this is part of the lyrics, and Joan Osborne's daughter, Vazi, she said, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, God is great. Yeah, yeah, God is good. Yeah, 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 yeah. What if God was like one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his own way home. You see, throughout millennia, people have tried to make God into their image of who he is instead of conforming our image to God. Not much has changed. Different sides of the same coin. And this was a really popular song. It resonated with people. You know, why can't God be more like us instead of asking the question, why can't we be more like God? How much has change? You see, our experience and our circumstances prompt us to look for a solution that fits what our expectation is. And God says, it might not be what you expect, this kingdom. It might be different. In Matthew 7 You know, uh, Jesus, as he was beginning his ministry, he lays out the Beatitudes. And this is what the internal organs, this is like the gut of the machine. He says, this is what I need you to be. This is what I want you to be. This is what you need to be. This is what I need to be. He says, why do you look at the speck of the sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your own eye, when all the time there was a plank in your own eye, and some people say that Jesus didn't have a sense of humor? I think this is pretty funny. I actually think this is funny. It's like thinking about this guy with a big old plank in his eye. He's like walking around blind, and he's trying to take the speck out of the brother's eye. To me, that's hilarious. There's no intended comedy in it, but the the situation itself is comedic. Don't you think? And when we see that, don't you think it's funny? That when we see people like, hey, man, so quick to point out things that needs to change. Wouldn't it be refreshing if we start out by saying, hey, look, this is what I'm working on. Somebody wrote a song about that, right? What a wonderful world it would be. That's, that's what Jesus envisioned his kingdom to be like people that are actually humble. We don't have time to go there. But Jesus actually says that, what is, you know, his disciples came to him. His disciples says, what must I do to become great in the kingdom? And Jesus says, actually, my kingdom is upside down. It's, upside, it's an upside down kind of kingdom. He says, the people that are great actually are the children among you. People that are humble. People that, are, that shows incredible humil- humility about them who ask questions don't get old guys it's an ugly thing it is you know i'm 48 years old and things are just falling apart i mean i'm just gluing stuff together at this point you know gel and you know stuff just just like gluing stuff and that's you know i was i was trying to get some um some hair thing and basically you know that's what it is it's glue it's just like glue so as I'm getting older, I want to be attractive to my wife. And I realize that that's a losing battle. And the only way I'm going to be attractive is on the inside. That's it. That's the only way I'm going to be attractive. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He says, man, listen. He says, uh, you hypocrite, take out the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw it to pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample on under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. He said, you might be giving people something that they really don't want and they'll use it and turn it back against you. Thanks, Gene. Appreciate it. (laughs) But the fruit of the Spirit, where do we get this? When we got baptized in Acts 2, the Bible says that we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? Right? And what does that gift look like? It's, 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 it's really, in some ways, it's bad English. is the fruit of the Spirit. It's like all these things, right? Shouldn't it be the fruits of the Spirit? No. One fruit. It's a great fruit. It's the fruit that, in, that has all these ingredients together. It's not all these separate fruits. It's one fruit that produces love, joy, peace. Forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and his desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You see, the Spirit is trying to push all these things from in, within us. You know what this is like when you buy a computer now? They actually preload your computer already with a lot of stuff. And if you want to fork over the money to pay for it, they'll give you a code to open up what's already inside. And when you don't give them the money, it's inside. It never comes out. Taking up your space on the disk, but it won't come out. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is already within us. Let's figure out a way to get these things out. Amen. To me, I don't know if I can say this at church, but I will. I'm gonna cover this so it won't be recorded. This is sexy. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I mean, look at it. I mean, this is attractive, don't you think? This is so attractive. This is attractive. You look at this and you go, What if all of us were like this? Patience, kindness, forbearance. That's the church I want to go to. That's the kingdom of God. Right? That's the kingdom of God. <laughs> Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's keep up. Meaning, you got to run. you got to work. you got to walk. And we don't like to hear that, but we live in a fallen world. That doesn't come naturally. It's a gift that has to be drawn out. That has to be cultivated. That has to be worked on. it's like running on a treadmill. If you stop, you're going to fall, right? You're going to fall flat, okay? And then you've got to keep running, keep in step, because the Spirit is moving. We're going to read a little bit more about that later on. Point number one was we need to adjust our expectation. We're at point number two now. I'm just kidding. He will pay with his life. I'm going to read a few scriptures, and then uh, Drew's going to come and pray. Remember I said that the kingdom encompasses everybody? That was, that was, it wasn't just for the Jews. God didn't have just a vision for the Jews. Now, there were some Greeks among those. Jesus has done his ministry. Those who went up to worship at the festival, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come from me for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls on the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many other seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also must be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Um, uh, let's keep going. He says, now my soul is troubled. You see, Jesus had to wrestle with this. It's not just going to be us. When the Bible says, keep in step with the Spirit, he didn't mean just us and he's like so high and mighty. He also wrestled with that. It's a struggle. He says, my soul is troubled. I I don't want to keep in step with the Spirit. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Give it to me on one click. You know, give it to me, ready made, ready package, throw it in the microwave. He says, Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and it will glorify it again. You see, this is the spirit of Jesus. He calls us to do something, but he actually set the pace for us beforehand. He is, he was in step with the spirit, and he knew this kingdom, in order for me to usher this kingdom in, there is an ultimate price. It's not cheap. And last week, we studied that out. Remember, what does that mean when Jesus says he is the Alpha and the Omega? What does that mean for us? What's the implication? Because it is so absolute, because it is so clear, it calls us to make a decision for our lives as well. In the Old Testament, and it wasn't just Jesus, and this is going to lead us into communion. As God looked at the world, he broke Jesus into the world to usher in the kingdom. But when the world was a mess in Genesis, if you read Genesis, it's dark. I love that movie, you know, Gladiator? Remember when the king asked him, he says, Maximus, why do you do what you do? And he says, the world, I've seen a lot of the world. And he says, it's a dark place. It's a dark place. And he says, I believe in what I'm doing. That's what he's saying. In Genesis 15, the Bible says that by that time, the world was a dark place. And God was trying to break through, and he broke through with a man by the name of Abram, and he was going to make a covenant with Abram. And this is a little bit theologically cool, if you will, and historically kind of cool. You see, today we have legal Zoom, right? We need to make a contract, we sign it on paper, and then we have it recorded. Well, back then, they didn't have legal Zoom. Back then they had weird ways of signing contracts and this was one of them in the ancient world. And it shows that no matter what happens, that in a contract God was willing to lead the way and to set the example. So they were going to set this contract. So the Lord said to him in Genesis 15 verse 9, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram bought all these to him, cut them into two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. You see, this was, in back then, everything was visual. They tried to make it visual. The reason why they cut the carcasses in half was to set A visual, a visceral, a gut sense of what this contract was going to be like and the consequence of breaking that contract. You see, it was a visual way of showing that if you break this contract, that this is what's going to happen to you, that you're going to be cut in half as well. It's a reminder to keep the contract, right? So Abram sets this whole thing up. And he got tired. It was towards the end of the day. And he was chasing all these carcasses away, these these birds that came down. And look what happened as we pray for communion. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. You know what God is doing here? and He was setting a precedent for the future for the cross. He says, you know, in this contract, I know, it, it, I, I would like you to keep the contract, but even if you don't, I, the Lord Almighty, will honor my portion of the contract. He said, and you know, it's ancient times, so it helps us that, the Bible says that on that day, the Lord made a covenant, meaning that that was a covenant, covenantal move, that the torch, the smoking pot, was God himself making this contract with us. That no matter what we do, God says, I'm going to hold up to my end of the bargain, to the pains of death. I'm going to have Drew to come up and pray for the communion.